This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at how to build high-performing cultures through the science of total motivation, how to spot the worst motivation for getting a job done, why culture might not want to eat strategy for breakfast anymore, and how to help employees long for the sea in their own ways. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more are Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor, co-authors of Primed to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation, which will hit bookstores around the country this week. Neil and Lindsay are co-founders of Vega Factor, a company focused on unlocking human potential to build the most adaptive organizations. Prior to founding Vega, Neil was a partner at McKinsey & Company and CTO and founding member of Genesant Technologies. Lindsay McGregor is a former consultant at McKinsey, where she led strategic and operational projects for Fortune 500 companies in the financial services, media, nonprofit, and education sectors. Welcome to the podcast, Neil and Lindsay. Thank you, Will, for having us. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. It's our pleasure to have you on. So let's kick things off today talking about the book. Your research in Prime to Perform centers on increasing motivation in order to boost performance within an organization. So what led you to analyze the correlation between the two, and what did you find that correlation was? You know, just last week, Will, we were talking to a mid-level manager who said that while everybody in their company was nice, they just weren't feeling inspired. And that very same day, the CEO said the exact same thing, that my people are uninspired. And he followed up by saying that even he felt uninspired. We've heard that same refrain over and over again in our combined 20 years of working with companies and nonprofits and school systems, but nobody that we talked to knew what to do about it. And we wanted to get to the root cause of this lack of inspiration. So we began to study over 20,000 people around the world and 50 major organizations, and we were able to draw a very simple conclusion from all of that data. Why you work determines how well you work. Okay, and, and the research led to the creation of what you call the quote-unquote motive spectrum, which has six components. Can you talk a little bit about the spectrum and what makes up the component parts? Absolutely. As Lindsay said, we concluded that why you work determines how well you work. But to help any organization engineer that, we needed a framework that actually explained those reasons why. What we did was we built the motive spectrum on a model developed in the 1980s by two professors, Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan. Their model, they called the self-determination continuum, explains motives. We built on top of that to tailor it for the workplace. In the motive spectrum, there are six reasons why people do anything, but we framed the whole thing around, around work. The first motive is what we call play. 
Play is when you do the work because you enjoy the work. So imagine a teacher at play. Teacher at play enjoys the job of tending to a classroom, problem solving around each student, focusing on creativity, um, really thinking about assignments and tests. They enjoy the work itself. A teacher at purpose, the second of the six motives, is one that values the outcome of the work. For instance, they value educating children. That's the purpose motive. The third motive is what we call potential. If the purpose motive is the direct outcome of the work that you value, the potential motive is you found an indirect outcome of the work that you value. So imagine that teacher again really wants to be an administrator. That's where he thinks he's going to have the most impact, but he thinks that being a teacher is a stepping stone to that job. The job wasn't designed to be a stepping stone. That's an indirect outcome. That's the potential motive. Play purpose and potential are all what we call the direct motives. At least in some way, they're connected to the work itself. However, the next one is the first of what we call the indirect motives because they're no longer connected to the work at all. The first one is what we call emotional pressure. So imagine a teacher that's doing that job because their parents were teachers and their grandparents were teachers and they felt like they'd disappoint people they care about if they weren't teaching. That's, that's emotional pressure. So shame, guilt, FOMO, uh, self-confidence issues, these are all forms of emotional pressure. The next one, economic pressure, is when you do something to gain a reward or avoid a punishment. So if you're simply doing the work for the money, it's economic pressure. And the last is what we call inertia. Inertia is when you ask somebody, why are they doing what they're doing? And they say, I don't know. I'm doing it because I did it yesterday, because I did it the day before yesterday. Essentially, I'm doing it because I'm doing it. Play purpose and potential, what we found, increased performance. Emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia end up decreasing performance. The direct motives increase performance, the indirect ones decrease it. What we also found is that the closer the motive is to the work itself, the more powerful. Play is the most powerful, then purpose, then potential. Inertia is the most destructive, then economic pressure, then emotional pressure. And so you mentioned inertia is the most destructive of all the aspects of the motive spectrum. Why is inertia so common in the workplace and so insidious? I'm glad you asked that, Will, because inertia is very common. Only 35% of people have no inertia. Why is it so common in the workplace? Imagine if you were a CEO of a company. Perhaps you have attrition rates of 20%. It's bad for business. What do you do about it? If you don't know about the motive spectrum, you'll probably make your culture just tolerable enough that people don't leave. And just total tolerable enough is inertia by definition. Because many strategies are based on inertia, your people's promo drops and therefore their performance drops. It's a surprisingly frequent strategy in the workplace. And in Prime to Perform, you describe a diagnostic way to calculate the total motivation or TOMO for people within an organization. Can you describe this method and what the results should yield? Yes. So one of the things that we were able to conclude with the motive spectrum is that its predictions were so consistent across so many different aspects of the human condition that we can boil it all down to a single concept that we call total motivation or TOMO for short. TOMO is when your organization creates as much play, purpose, and potential as possible and reduces emotional pressure, 
economic pressure, and inertia as much as possible. And all, all of that we can boil down to a single metric. The importance of the metric really we can't understate because as soon as an organization gets beyond 50 people, you can't manage culture through gut instinct. Gut simply doesn't scale. Instead, you need a way to measure the strength of an organization's culture so you can tell if it's getting stronger or weaker. Better still, you need a way to connect culture to economic performance uh, because eventually you need to justify what you're spending on it. Until now, there was no way to measure the strength of an organization's culture. Now, what we've been able to do is create a very simple, easy-to-use measure that we call the TOMO factor that essentially measures how much play, purpose, and potential people feel at work and how little emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia people feel at work. The measurement is pretty easy. Only six questions are required in a survey, uh, one question for each of the six motives. Using some very simple math, from there you can calculate the TOMO of a culture. Uh, the math is so simple, we share it in our book, Prime to Perform. And if you go to our website, primetoperform.com, uh, you can launch a free survey for the people in your team to measure their TOMO. Let me give you an example of how this plays out. So at one prestigious professional services firm, we measured their TOMO. And what we can show them was that there was way too much emotional pressure in their culture and way too little play and purpose. For the longest time, they knew their culture was weakening, but they couldn't actually tell how. In another example, in an investments firm, we can measure the TOMO of their portfolio managers and quantitatively prove that the portfolio managers with higher TOMO actually picked better stocks and had better portfolio performance. For them, we could quantitatively demonstrate that there was incredibly large economic value to TOMO. Once you can do that, it kicks the door open in your ability to actually manage your culture. And so do you see this having broad implications in industries like financial services where there tends to be a culture of you go to work for Goldman Sachs in New York, you work 120 hours a week, basically all your waking hours and then some, but maybe you don't actually get good results from, from working all of your waking hours. So are you seeing industries where this will maybe change the way that, that things have traditionally been done? Absolutely. For the longest time, organizations just simply didn't understand or even think about play purpose and potential. The only tools that they knew were emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. And while those motives can catalyze a behavior, they can't sustain performance. You really need more play purpose potential, less emotional pressure, less economic pressure, less inertia to sustain performance. So whether it's an investment bank where we can quantitatively demonstrate that analyst performance portfolio manager performance all increase with TOMO, uh, or take a retail bank where we can measure and show you data on how frontline bankers with higher TOMO produce more revenue. By being able to show that connection, the, in the organizations that we work with, it has dramatically changed how they think about building their organization and human capital systems. And let me ask you about the first element, which is play. So I, I'm, we're all talking about culture in the workplace, and I imagine there's kind of a stigma associated with play in the workplace, but what would be some examples of companies where you've seen them implement play and achieve positive results, or what might be some of the tactics they've undertaken? A great question. I'd love to start off by making sure that people understand that play at work isn't 
a foosball table or a ping pong table. Um, play isn't the distraction from your work. For something to drive the play motive at work, it actually has to be the work itself that engenders play. And so if you think about what play is and how play leads to performance, play is the human instinct for learning. It's when we feel curiosity. It's when that curiosity manifests as we try something, see what happens, learn from it, keep exploring. And in that context, it has a very strong connection to how people continuously improve their own performance. Examples of organizations that instill play at work are situations where they essentially give people room to experiment. So for example, in a call center that we were working with once, this call center focused all their time and energy and teaching people what they weren't allowed to do. Here were all the policies, here's all the laws, here's all the regulations that they weren't allowed to break. But they spent absolutely no time helping people understand these are the areas where you should experiment. These are the areas where you should try things out. These are the areas where we don't have an answer. And so your continuous learning is actually going to be important to us achieving impact for our customers. Uh, and those organizations, by building that into the job itself, they are, in fact, inspiring play. Many people doubt that play is possible in many types of jobs. But we've actually found that play exists in all types of jobs in all industries. So, for example, if you take what people might assume would be the most routine job, working on in an automotive plant, assembling cars. Even there, where you're doing a routine job, organizations like Toyota have found ways to introduce play. For people working on the Toyota assembly line, they actually have people whose job it is to make the tools that the Toyota people come up with. So if you have an idea, there is somebody who will come and listen to your idea, sketch out the new tool, and bring it to you to test and try it. That's an example of how you bring play, that sense of learning and innovation to any organization. Okay, nice. So let me go back to the TOMO equation. Part of the equation in your research is focused on motivation, while the other part is focused on performance. So tactical performance, which is how well someone can execute a plan that's laid out for them, is the most common type seen in the corporate world. But your research suggests that it's another kind of performance that delivers the best results. Can you talk a little bit about what that kind of performance is? Definitely. Your question reminds me of one that we received in one of our earliest speeches, where after we explained the motive spectrum, an executive raised his hand and said, I don't get it. If I held a gun to your head and told you to do 10 jumping jacks, wouldn't you do those jumping jacks? Doesn't that mean that the indirect motives drive performance? On some level, he's right. That person will do 10 jumping jacks. But are they going to do them well? Are they going to think about how they could do their jumping jacks better? Are they going to be creative or innovative? Or are they actually spending the entire time plotting their revenge? What we realized is that there's actually two types of performance. The first is tactical performance. As you said, this is how well people stick to the plan. When you develop a strategy, processes, policies, all to drive consistency and economics of scale and focus, this is tactical performance. But the second type of performance is adaptive performance. And this is how well your people diverge from the plan. When the plan isn't sufficient, do your people innovate, 
Do they create? Do they problem solve? Are they resilient in the face of challenges? This is all adaptive performance, and this is driven by our culture. Any motive can drive tactical performance, but adaptive performance requires total motivation. What's important is that tactical and adaptive performance are actually opposites. Tactical is how well you stick to the plan. Adaptive is how well you don't stick to the plan. And because these two types of performance are opposite, overemphasis on one tends to destroy the other. You have to keep the two in balance. We've probably all experienced organizations where tactical performance has been overemphasized. Imagine, for example, if we were all the leaders of a call center. If we wanted to optimize the call center, we would probably develop a strategy, teach everyone the rules, write scripts, measure how long each phone call lasted. We'd have a quality control person listen into every phone call, and we'd punish people if they deviated from the script. We might even fire people if they deviated too much. Will that call center agent adapt when they need to? I'm guessing that we've all been on the other end of phone calls where it's clear that a customer service agent is following a script, and the script doesn't have an answer to your question. It's frustrating. And this is exactly the type of thing that happens when you overemphasize tactical performance. And, and one of the biggest setbacks to creating that adaptive company culture is what you refer to in the book as the blame bias which is when we believe that an individual is to blame for any problems that come up. So why is this so detrimental to company culture, overall performance, and innovation in the workplace? So really good question. The blame bias is what sociologists call the fundamental attribution error. According to this research, we're all biased to believe that people cause the outcomes of events, even if those outcomes are actually caused by circumstances outside of people's controls. This is a real issue. So imagine one research study showed how in a workplace uh, factory, there were some factory accidents and managers were more likely to blame factory workers in those accidents rather than the circumstances of the factory. Now in a situation like that, you're more likely, if you're more likely to blame the person rather than the situation, you might do some training you might put into place sticks and carrots to prod and poke the individuals. But if you didn't blame the person, you might do things like paint danger areas yellow or increase the frequency of inspecting machines or focus on culture. Another piece of research, when students' performance was low in school, people tended to blame the teacher and the student rather than the circumstances around the teacher and the student. So if you're gonna blame the teacher, you might start to do things like, well, let me use sticks and carrots to motivate the teacher rather than solve for the context around them. Unfortunately, when we blame people as we're so biased to do, we're unlikely to see how culture actually drives performance, so we don't bother to invest in it. Instead, we say to things like, well, we just don't have good people. And unfortunately, this is pretty common in organizations. And one notable quote that you reference in the book is from one of the most influential management gurus of all time, Peter Drucker, and it's the commonly accepted wisdom that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Your research shows, however, that this isn't necessarily the case. So what do you think the relationship between culture and strategy should look like? 
strategy is important because it's the force of tactical performance. It's where the plan comes from. That tactical performance allows us to focus all of our resources and energy on a common plan. But strategy isn't enough, as Peter Drucker knew. The business world is full of what the military calls VUCA, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Strategy simply can't predict everything. You need culture to deal with the unexpected. Culture is that force of adaptive performance. Without adaptive performance, VUCA becomes a threat rather than an opportunity. So we don't believe that culture eats strategy for breakfast or that strategy eats culture for brunch. Instead, they have to be kept in balance, something that very few organizations do. So let me ask about corporate leadership. You described four types of company leaders in the book, quid pro quo, hands-off, enthusiasts, and fire starters. And the results of the companies that these different types of leaders command are wildly different. So what do fire starters do and know that make them so much more effective than the rest of their counterparts? As a leader, you can choose how you motivate your team. You can use only the direct motives, only the indirect motives, both or neither. A leader that uses only the indirect motives is what we call quid pro quo. They're transactional, something for something. If you do this for me, I'll give you this. A leader that uses neither is what we call hands-off. They're essentially not actually trying to motivate actively in any way. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of leaders think this is the best strategy, to be hands-off, to give people space. There's a type of leader that uses both. They try to drive play purpose potential, but they're also still using emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. We call them the enthusiasts. However, the leaders that produce the best results are the ones that we call the fire starters. They're the ones that only focus on play purpose and potential, and they are actively trying to reduce emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. The way the fire starters do this is first on play. They inspire learning, curiosity, and experimentation. They want you to find parts of your job where you should be experimenting, trying things out. They inspire purpose by connecting their people to the impact of their work. And better still, they role model the value that they create for other people. They also do things like reduce emotional pressure by creating a common sense of community, by letting you be your authentic self at work. They decrease economic pressure by not constantly reminding you of the sticks and carrots of the environment around you. When you compare a fire starter versus, say, a quid pro quo leader, quid pro quo leader produces in their subordinates an average tome of about negative one. A fire starter produces an average tome in their subordinates of about 38. And the top 5% of fire starters produce a tome of 60 or more. And all of that results in significantly higher performance. And one of the things you write about in the book that the best leaders do is instill a a longing for the sea in their charges rather than teaching them how to build boats. So can you talk a little bit about that concept? Yeah, there's a great quote about how if you're going to build a boat, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but you could recruit the builders, give them wood, give them supplies, et cetera, or you can teach them to long for the vast and endless sea. That is, in effect, the difference between tactical and adaptive. It is the difference between 
a low-tomo and a high-tomo strategy. In a low-tomo strategy, you focus all of your energy on creating that plan and getting everyone to stick to that plan. Any deviation is intolerated. In the high-tomo strategy, you realize that you do need your people to be adaptive. You realize that the world they're in is high VUCA, and the only way to get them to perform at their best in that high VUCA world is they have to feel play, purpose, and potential for that work. They have to long for the vast and endless sea. I think that um, because we're only scratching the surface in this conversation, there are a lot of resources where if you're a passionate leader who's trying to build a great culture, there are places that you can go to learn more. So, for example, we wrote, we wrote our book, Time to Perform, really to give leaders a common understanding of the science of high-performing cultures and a language that they can use with the whole organizations to talk about it. And even on our website, primetoperform.com, we offer that free survey tool where any leader can go and measure the tomo of their team right now. Okay, nice. Well, great notes to close on and great food for thought. Neil and Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for writing the book. It's called Prime to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. And uh, very much appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Will. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Will. If you're interested in learning more about total motivation, you can visit the Primed to Perform website at www.primedtoperform.com. There you can buy the book and access a number of resources related to it, including a TOMO survey to see how your company fares. If you'd like to learn more about Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor, you can follow them on Twitter at at NeilVF and at McGregorLE. That's M-C-G-R-E-G-O-R-L-E. Thanks again to Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Laura Vanderkam on the podcast to talk about productivity in the workplace and beyond. We'll talk about how changing your personal rhetoric can help you refocus your efforts, how much more leisure time you actually have than you think you have, and why having partners in crime can make any hill look less steep. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.